For months, ISIS has raged across Iraq and Syria, staging mass executions and beheadings. But who are they? How do they live day by day? How do they make money and recruit fighters and wives? On November 6th, WGBH, the home of Frontline, hosted a public panel discussion to answer some of those questions. Participants included Frontline's Martin Smith, who discussed his recent film, The Rise of ISIS, Professor Mia Bloom of the UMass Lowell Center for Terrorism and Security Studies, and Charles Sennett, a veteran foreign reporter who founded the Ground Truth Project to train a new generation of foreign correspondents. The panel was led by PRI The World's Aaron Schachter. And we'll start with Martin Smith, who uh, produced the, the Rise of ISIS. And, and Martin, you've been reporting now for decades, about 40 years from some of the world's hot spots. Let, let's start with you. Where did ISIS come from and, and what's going on? Well, this project began when David Fanning, the uh, senior executive producer of Frontline, called me up after ISIS had taken Mosul and said, what are we going to do about ISIS? And I said, uh, do you mean what's the United States going to do or what is Frontline going to do? Um, the idea behind it was to take a step back and try to get our heads around what the origins were. And very few of us in this room, I think, had ever heard of ISIS four or five months ago. And what I quickly found out is there was a very rich political story in the frustration of the Sunni community that was quashed by the increasing sectarian policies of Maliki that softened places like Mosul, Fallujah, and Ramadi to ISIS being able to really pushing on an open door because the population was they didn't like ISIS particularly, but they really hated Maliki more. Maliki, the, the prime minister of the Shia-led government. So I hadn't seen this really covered. Um, I had been in Iraq last in 2007, and the story of tens of thousands of Sunnis taking to the streets, pressing for Maliki to keep the promises he had made before the Americans left the country. It was their Arab Spring. It wasn't covered here. People didn't really know much about it. When Maliki met those demonstrators with machine guns and massacred people, you had people willing to invite ISIS into their cities, or in fact, some young men actually taking up arms, some people that had been participating in those peaceful protests. The question for Mia, um, you're a professor of terrorism studies at, uh, of security studies at UMass Lowell. Who are these people? What is it that drives people to join an organization like this? What is with these people? What you have, I think, as a result of two years of extremely sectarian, violent politics that excluded the, the Sunnis um, to, the, to the degree that even members of the government were being targeted. Their bodyguards were being kidnapped and killed. They themselves were being arrested or threatened. Now what you have is a spillover effect. You don't just have Iraqis and people like Baghdadi or people who were formerly at Gitmo. What you have now is you have an attraction and allure that is going throughout the world to the extent that when you look at the foreign fighters, Almost every country in the world, is except maybe Antarctica, is contributing to foreign fighters. Uh, we've focused a lot on the foreign fighters coming from the West. The overwhelming number, however, have come from Arab countries. And what's interesting is that um, 
the New York Times ran a piece, I guess about 10 days ago, that talked about Tunisia, which has been the greatest success of the, of the Arab Spring countries in terms of its levels of democracy and freedom has contributed the, the most, most foreign fighters right. to, to ISIS. So, so, so what are they looking for? Is it, is it a religious quest? Is it a jihad as it's made out to be? Are they just out for some sort of glory? So one of the things that's been especially attractive is the fact that the caliphate was established and Muslims around the world see, you know, hear the word caliphate and think, okay, well, I have either an individual or a general obligation to go to the caliphate. Caliphate being, being a, a pure Muslim the state. The idea of being ruled over by a Muslim ruler, and many of the people, when they talk about why they joined, they'll say things like they didn't feel that they could be Muslims in the West, or they felt oppressed, or they felt persecuted, or they felt, you know, that they were being treated poorly. At the same time, you also have a huge swath of people who, you know, for them, um, to quote the director of my center, John Horgan, it's the call of duty war. They are participating in the kind of, you know, gaming that they've grown up on. It's so a live video game, It's a live video game in real time, real action. The majority of the foreign fighters are not the battle-hardened people that were in the frontline piece. Majority are these, you know, teenage or, or early 20s, people who themselves don't really feel that they are making a real contribution or they're not going to change history. They're tired of being the, you know, not the agents of change in history. They are just uh, bystanders. This allows them to participate in a way that at some level psychologically is empowering, even though probably within just a few weeks, they're gonna be cannon fodder. And like the women, who think that they're going to have this very exciting and adventurous experience, they're gonna get out there and within a few weeks, they're gonna be married and pregnant and basically that's not the life that they're anticipating. Was that you who pointed out that they're being offered refrigerators and cookers and all sorts of uh, My favorite was booty. that they're being offered milkshake machines. Milkshake. And my response was, how much ice cream is in Raqqa that they have milkshake machines? This is what Um Leith, which is uh, this uh, Glaswegian girl, Aksa Mahmood, put on her Tumblr account as a way to convince women in the West so that they're using the Western women to recruit other Western women. Now, th this is not something I should probably say out loud in front of a group of people, but uh, when, you, when you see the videos, mu much of what we see, right, has been shot by ISIS themselves because they want you to know it, it is sort of, you know, jihad porn, I think somebody called it. And it looks pretty cool. If, yeah. if you're a 19-year-old kid with, as you say, nothing to do. I was gonna say that the Arab Spring was about young people wanting to change the world, change their countries, change their lives. They were looking at these sclerotic regimes who, who presided over them with tyranny and dictatorships, some like Egypt that we supported for a very long time. And I think the Tahrir Square moment, you could feel the streets really wanting to affect change. You could feel young people coming together with social networking, remember the Facebook revolution, and there was this real passionate sense of we're gonna change the world. It's exciting, Tahrir Square was equal in terms of its draw for people to come out. And I think we saw it ripple through the region and it almost affected change. One thing to reflect on is what happens when America doesn't seize that moment and really foster that yearning for democracy. Mm. Instead, on 4th of July weekend, a military coup happened 
in Egypt. And America didn't have a lot to say about it because it was the Muslim Brotherhood that was being overthrown, even if they were democratically elected by two-thirds majority. We just thought it wasn't really something we need to worry about because let's get rid of that Muslim Brotherhood. But something Marty and I learned in reporting this out is that al-Zawahri, Egyptian, now the head of al-Qaeda, has for decades criticized the Muslim Brotherhood for believing in democracy because he said, the second you get elected, the West will never let you rule. So one thing to reflect on in American foreign policy is, to what extent have we allowed Zawahri to make his case? If you don't embrace the yearnings for democracy, even if we don't like where they're going mm. in the short term, and the Muslim Brotherhood was not going in a good direction, their constitution was against minorities, against women, deep concerns. But as we were talking about in the green room, why the rush? Let democracy take right. its course and unseat them in an election. ISIS takes the energy from that, I think. I wanted to go back to, to Mia's point about these fighters that are coming. I think we have trouble getting our heads around the sort of ultra-violence uh, and wondering how it is that they are attracted. And it's not quite enough to, to posit that it's a sort of a video game attraction because there's a big difference between a video game and reality. But the truth is that until this fight for the, for the town of Kobani on the Syrian-Turkish border, there really hasn't been a battle. And I think the word has gone out to many of these people that they can come join this thing. The Iraqi army is you know, frightened, rotten to the core, on the run. We can go out there and we can have a damn good time. And you look at a lot of their videos, and I've looked at more than I want to admit uh, in making the film. Um, you know, there's a lot of posing for pictures. These guys are having a good time. Yeah, they are. But there just hasn't been uh, that much fighting. The, the real fighting is gone on, is it, taking place by these really hardcore guys that were out in the desert and were the guys that we didn't kill. Um, or the ex-Bathists that were trained by Saddam. Right, or the ex-Bathists who they met in American prisons. Right? right, the American prisons were the incubators for, for a lot of this coming together of Bathist military experience with the fervency of, of Islamic Jihad. Okay, I wanted to mention there's just one video that I saw and it looked like going to the gym. I mean, these guys were working out, getting pumped. Mm. And then they slaughtered a goat, and everybody had a full plate of food. And you know, if you're coming from some of these places in a dead-end life, that looked pretty damn attractive. Mm. So the question is, will the Islamic State endure? When you say, will the Islamic State endure, you have to ask yourself, what is the Islamic State? The Islamic State as an idea uh, has been around for a while and will continue. And yes, they can be degraded uh, by airstrikes, but they cannot be rooted out. The easy part of this is the military victory. The difficult part of this are the problems of sectarian hatreds that are deeply rooted in the region, uh, the, the false borders. I mean, Iraq, as we've known it, is a fiction as a, as a state that can work. Um, so I think the idea of an Islamic state has, has great attraction. The caliphate has great attraction to people. That idea will live. That fiction of what is known as Iraq, and only been known as that for 100 years, is that you can throw together Sunni, Shia, and Kurdish populations under one rule. That's the British Empire that decided that was more convenient, particularly to keep the oil fields of Mosul in 1916, right when those oil fields are beginning to be discovered. And they're recognizing they need this to sustain their naval fleet. That convenience of Western imperialism is 
really unraveling. I mean, we're, watch, we're witnessing a hundred year mark of history right now. The modern Middle East is coming undone before our eyes. So I'm gonna play devil's advocate for a second <laughs> and say that uh, yes, Iraq was a fiction. It was a, a marriage of convenience, but whether or not the Islamic State can endure, I think for me is where I take a slightly different perspective all of the standard Sunni mainstream Islamic sources of theology uh, have basically said, ISIS is not Islam. These people are Khawarij. They are violating the tenets of Islam. They're posers. And in fact, in many of these um, environments, they, Muslims have been told, if you join ISIS, you're excommunicated. You will not be a Muslim anymore. So I don't know if that's a model that's actually tenable. Mia, one sure. of your students, Sean Walsh, asks, could uh, the ex-Bathists have an influence? Could they jump ship from ISIS and, and be a stabilizing force? Yeah, I mean, ISIS, as we know it, is a coalition. It's a coalition of tribesmen who threw in their lot with uh, an anti-Maliki uh, insurgency. It's the hardcore jihadis, and it's the Ba'athists, and it's a, it's a it's a coalition that has already shown signs of fracturing. I think the key to it is the tribes. I think getting the tribes to come over, as was done during the Sunni awakening by General Petraeus and others, uh, is the key. And if you can get the uh, tribesmen to say, we don't want ISIS in our towns and communities, then I think that's this whole ISIS thing falls apart. And I don't think that the Ba'athists ideologically are that firmly entrenched. I think, as your film documented, they're really in it for their own power and their own position, and the fact that they are trying to recoup what they lost when they were you know, predominant. So like the town of Tikrit could literally turn on a dime. It's a little bit more than that, isn't it? I mean, it's also that they feel so betrayed by the government in Baghdad that is so clearly a Shia-dominated government. And I thought it was the great strength of the film was to create that TikTok, that narrative, to watch the point at which the US troops pull out, Maliki moves forward, and begins to exercise a Shia domination that the Sunni population, particularly in Mosul, is repelling against and therefore receiving even this death cult, ISIS, if it's going to be what will be an expression of their rage. So it's, it's not the Ba'athists just looking to recoup sort of crass, linear power. I think it's something deeper about a feeling of insecurity on the part of the Sunni, which is why this thing is so volatile. There's a question here from Joyce Maroney out here in the audience. She wonders, since the Kurds are willing to fight and back the US, why don't we back them? Why don't they become our proxy in this fight? They are and we do. And what stuns me, I, I really was with the Kurds a lot in 2003 and before in the 90s and, and have covered that region for long enough to wonder how is it that the Kurds still have faith in us? We let them down time and time again. You remember there was the no-fly zone, but then they didn't, they didn't rule out the helicopters. Where were we with the the Anfal campaign, when you saw Saddam Hussein, then sort of our ally, going after and, and just killing, you know, what is it, 120,000 people killed in the Anfal campaign, or more, I think it is. The, 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 the barbarity that the Kurds have suffered with us watching and not really doing anything makes me wonder, how is it that they're loyal to us? But they are because they see us as the best bet for their yearnings for democracy. It's a region full of bloodshed and tyranny and corruption. 
and terrible things. But the one thing you do feel in the Kurdish population is a sense of they want an independent state and our honor will be on the line if they fight ISIS as hard as they are right now uh, to, to back them in that. I agree, I agree completely with the question. Um, we, have, we have a question from Bill right here in the front. ISIS seems to be an idea that is as powerful to some citizens of Iraq and Syria, maybe in much of the Middle East as we're talking about, as sort of the freedom ideal is to the United States. Can ISIS be degraded without these folks getting rid of this ideal, the, the caliphate ideal? That's at the core of your film, Marty. You should take well, that Well, I, I mean, I was, I was saying before, I think the idea of having a state a Sunni state uh, that spans the Syrian Iraq, the old Syrian-Iraq border is a very attractive idea um, to a lot of people there as well as uh, those coming from abroad. But it's not something, <laughs> I mean, that can be defeated militarily, but the urge to somehow carve out uh, some space, I think, is what will happen in the post-ISIS period, and that will be some kind of Sunni uh, zone. I mean, the Sunnis are not going to settle for less than what the Kurds have already achieved uh, in, in the autonomy that they have. So I think this is what we're talking about here, is the, the split up of the country. Now, what happens on the Syrian side of the border is a more complicated uh, uh, thing. I don't know how, you know, I mean, that is pretty lawless territory, and until Assad is gone or some settle, settlement is, is reached, uh, I don't know. The, the complexity of the alliances that are shifting and forming right now are pretty extraordinary. If you think about the U.S. and Iran fighting together against the Islamic State, yet once the Islamic State is degraded, I'm not so sure the president's wish to have them destroyed is going to happen, but degrading is one thing. If you then get through that, let's say you even did that successfully, which I think will take a long time and won't happen without more troops on the ground. But even when you finish that, you then have Bashar al-Assad in power and you have the war still raging and then we suddenly are against Iran because Iran is gonna back the Alawite Bashar al-Assad. You know, guys, US this is, is gonna be really against complicated. It. I know, it's, I mean, it's we don't, we don't, it is. We don't do complicated here. <laughs> okay. Uh, while we've been speaking, uh, this came from the Associated Press. Obama has written, President Obama has written a rare letter to Iran's Ayatollah. We heard about that today, but mm. included in that letter uh, is a discussion about the fight against ISIS. So it is not what exactly what you're talking about now is not so far-fetched right. that the U.S. and Iran join together. Well, they are. They're well, just they not together. talking directly about the fact that they're joining together. But on the battlefield, they're going in the same direction. So it's, it's, it's a stunning time of all these axioms you've heard about in the Middle East of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I think it's becoming even more complicated. What happens when the enemy of your enemy is your enemy? And what happens when, you know, you don't have any friends? And, <laughs> and I think um, the, the equation has just gotten infinitely more complex. Well, okay, now talking about enemies and friends, we have a, a question from the audience. Um, this one comes from Sid, and Barbara has a similar question. Uh, what is the role of, of Saudi Arabia, some of the other neighbors in the region? Uh, you mentioned, someone mentioned earlier that this is a proxy fight. 
right, between I, I the whole. I was about to jump in and say okay. that before you ask the question, that one simpler way to think about this is a proxy war between the Sunni states uh, of the Middle East and uh, Iran, the, and the portion of Iraq that is Shia. So you have a proxy based in Saudi Arabia, centered in Saudi Arabia, I mean, fighting, uh, using, uh, well, there are, there's, you know, there's no government support, as Mia pointed out, for ISIS, but there are deep-pocketed sheikhs throughout Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the United Arab Emirates. And they Emirates. were arming the opposition. They just didn't realize it was a black box in which there was this thing called ISIS taking shape. And some were, in fact, I'm sure. Um, I mean, money went to bin Laden before, so there was money going to ISIS. I mean, they quickly became a self-sustaining force. But you have them using ISIS as a proxy, and you have the Shia militia being supported by Iran fighting on the other side. Mm -hmm. So it's a simpler way to think of it, perhaps. It does get complicated. I mean, the fact that it gets complicated is why we've never been successful in all, all our forays. I mean, I think we're about 0 and 20 in the region. The other country to think about is Turkey. Saudi Arabia, we know, uh, I think you've explained that well, but Turkey, I think a question many of you might have, I know I've had, is like, what are they doing? They're sort of sitting this one out as they watch two of their enemies kill each other. So on that front, they're kind of good where they are. They and also- they're worried about the third enemy getting independence, so right. there's the three Kurds, enemies. The right, so, they, so the only military action they've taken is to hit Kurds inside Southeast Turkey. It's exactly what we did when the Iranians were killing the Iraqis for eight to 10 years, and we sat by and were happy that that was going but on. I, but I think Turkey has an obligation, and I don't think the United States has ever, uh, in this administration in particular, wielded its authority very well in terms of what's expected of allies. Uh, what was Turkey doing leaving that border so wide open for people to be flowing through there? Well, Isn't because they Turkey... were the good guys at one point, weren't they? But The well, bad guys were the good guys, the enemies were the friends and the Turkey's friends. Turkey's very sophisticated about its borders, and I do think there was a point over the summer, spring, summer, where it was pretty clear there was a lot of bad guys flowing in, and they didn't shut it down. Question is why? I mean, some things have changed over time. I think that initially, you're right, between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, there was a lot of money flowing to this amorphous anti-Assad coalition. But I know that the Saudis have put $100 million to fight ISIS. Um, Turkey did shut down the power grid so that there was no power going to ISIS. And in fact, they turned around and started threatening Turkey. So I think part of the explanation for why Turkey is sitting on the border with Kobane and just you know, not getting involved, acting all Swiss, is that they have been <laughs> routinely threatened by ISIS, and there is a concern, and there, this is a, something you see commonly, where you know perhaps if we let the terrorists through, they won't attack us. So there is a bit of that going on in Turkey, but I think Turkey itself is also facing a real challenge, because on the one hand, in the coalition, you have elements of the Islamic parties, but they don't want to put in you know their, their vote with ISIS. They're not um, aligning with ISIS, but at the same time, they don't want to look like they're supporting Bashar al-Assad. But it's a very tough situation. Yeah. Turkey's not as noble as the Swiss, I would say. I, I think of and them more. And their chocolate is nowhere near as good either. But I would think of them more <laughs> as, as uh, my days covering police in New York City when one drug gang would be killing the other drug gang and the police would do nothing about the rival war because as one detective once told me with that great sort of shrug of a New York City cop, it's public service murder. 
And that, I think, is much more where Turkey's head is at. We have this uh, via a Twitter user from Russia using our hashtag Rise of, Rise of ISIS. Do you think ISIS poses a threat to the other neighboring countries, Jordan, Lebanon? Specifically, uh, refugees, what, what is the threat? No, absolutely. And that's something that I was saying in the summer. I was uh, interviewed in one of the Arab stations in Arabic, and I said that um, ISIS, given the fact that the majority of the foreign fighters were coming from Arab countries and Turkey, uh, that they are a greater threat in terms of the returnees than they are to the United States. And so as a result, it really is incumbent upon those neighboring countries to provide the boots on the ground. And I think actually your film made that point, that it, you know, it might be that the United States and some of the coalition forces are able to provide the air support, but it's really the locals that are in the surrounding countries that really have to populate any kind of army that would go in. Because at the end of the day, um, it needs to be shown that ISIS is a threat to the Arab world greater than it is a threat to the United States. How the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan continues to survive mystifies me. Because you have a 60 to maybe 70% majority Palestinian. And then you have refugee camps in the hundreds of thousands forming on the border. And, and one thing I've not seen reported, and it's maybe something we, we, we should get busy about, is how, how do we know that they, they don't have ISIS infiltrating the refugee camps to then spill into Jordan? Because the refugees are flowing in and out of the camps and in, in some of the communities where the camps are. And I guess most of all, driving through Jordan uh, this, this summer, when I, or sorry, just a couple weeks ago, losing track of time, driving through Jordan and recognizing that um, I have never felt more a sense of, of precarious calm. You know, looking at the number of riot police, Jordan was always the place where when you came back from Iraq or you came back from, some, from the war in Lebanon or you were wherever the worst things in the world were going on, you tended to come through Jordan and you let your shoulders down for a minute and you, you sort of breathe. Yeah, you could, you could get sushi. You could actually go to a nice hotel. You could, like, you know, kind of get calm a little bit. Driving through there, I did not feel that this time. And I sensed a, a lot more street presence of, of uh, riot cops. I saw a little outbreak of a demonstration. College students demonstrating about something. But the batons were out. Muslim Brotherhood is, is ascendant in the parliament there. I'm, I'm very curious about reporting on Jordan. I just fear we miss everything. The State Department has missed everything. The fall of the wall. The Soviet Union, like what, we missed that one. Then we missed the rise of Al Qaeda. Then we missed the actual 9-11 event. Then we missed the Arab Spring. Like what's next? ISIS? Oh, okay, we missed ISIS. Four months ago they Jordan. were the B team, right? Yeah, I mean, when do we wake up one morning and and find out that we haven't been paying attention to Jordan. So I'm thinking, Andrew, we should go do some reporting together. No, and, and the Jordanian, <laughs> the Jordanian government has spent huge amounts of its budget in terms of sustaining. Uh, no, not for the security, but also for sustaining the refugees. I mean, Jordan has been overwhelmed with refugees, not just in the last two years, but in you know since the Iraq War. And the government has actually done a very good job yeah. of ensuring that those refugees are are fed, are clothed, have shelter, are treated with dignity. And I think that that's important. I think having had the experience of integrating Palestinian refugees for 40 odd years has also helped that right. there is an infrastructure built in. 
But now Dubai... We have, we have a question, Charlie, from sure. the audience. Um, since ISIS is so active on social media, and we've heard lots of stories about this, as we said, uh, much of the video we see comes from them filming mm -hmm. it, and they've made some truly incredible propaganda videos. Why does the NSA have so much trouble intercepting their traffic? I, I don't think we missed ISIS. I think we missed the rot inside the Iraqi security forces. I think if you talk to people in the administration, I've had this conversation in, in the White House, they were getting plenty of warnings about ISIS growing. They could look at those, uh, those videos that were being put out um, and see what they had. But what they didn't expect is that in Mosul, the Iraqi security forces would turn tail and run. We had no advisors on the ground watching the military. We had no reporting chain uh, that could tell us that when they said there were 1,000 guys in the barracks, that there were only you know, 200. And that's, that was a fact. I mean, those kinds of percentages were the case. They were ghost soldiers. The generals were pocketing the money, uh, claiming they had 1,000 soldiers on the payroll. Um, that's what the administration missed. And um, but they missed the peril, didn't they? I mean, they missed the idea that this force This force was wasn't great until they waltzed into Mosul, push on an open door, and inherit yeah, tons upon true. tons of American Humvees, that's, that's up armored mm -hmm. trucks, artillery, weapons. How many billions of dollars did the US government under Petraeus's leadership put towards training? The Iraqi one, one, army. One trillion, wasn't it? So, so don't we shouldn't be under any illusion that it's not possible that some of the Sunni-trained Iraqi army have have defected over to the ISIS side and know these weapons, had trained on them, they know how to drive an MRAP because they were taught to drive them by the U.S. But the, on the to quest, the question had a good um, piece embedded in it, which is the social media and the sophistication these guys have, which is extraordinary. And I just want to share one brief anecdote. I know you don't want me to go there, but I'm going to go really fast. Uh -oh. Remember when I threw out Sykes-Pico? Some of you know who it is. Tell your neighbor what it is if they don't know. <laughs> Sykes-Pico is the lines of after World War I that made it. So when we were reporting on this 100th anniversary of World War I. I started June 28, 2014, on the bridge in Sarajevo where Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated. So I'm just sitting there, photographer's working, I have a little bit of time, and I'm looking at my phone, at following Twitter, and I come to the live tweets that are coming from ISIS as they go across the berm from, from Syria into Iraq, and the hashtag on Twitter is hashtag SykesPicoOver. Now, they're not just, don't, they don't just understand their history. They're, they're social networking their history in a way that is running circles around uh, a lot of the State Department efforts to do any kind of counterbalancing or countermessaging about a belief in democracy or a belief in the things that we hold to be dear and true. But I and don't just think so you know, Marty, they're, they're also tweeting with the hashtag Rise of ISIS. Yeah. So, uh, well, they're watching. A number of them have directly messaged me and asked me questions yes. about the film. There are about 60,000, uh, by one estimate, uh, Twitter uh, accounts that are pro-ISIS that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, and you can get into conversations with them about this. But I don't think we should be so surprised about their sophistication with social media. I mean, we've all become much more sophisticated with social media. There's no reason to believe that they wouldn't uh, 
you know, be on the same learning curve and using these tools that are widely available. It's, it's true. They are, they are definitely reading. They're reading what we say. They're reading what you say. At the same time, I want to quote something I read today I thought was excellent. Speaking of Twitter, I follow Blogs of War. And he had a fantastic podcast saying that actually uh, the social media campaign will be the end of ISIS, precisely for the reason that the question was asked that there is a lot of information and intelligence and GIS information is being tracked because although they're very media savvy, they're not you know, bouncing the signals off of different satellites, that there's information, locational information, and so that at the end of the day, the fact that they're, they've got the discussion going is one thing, but at least as far as Blogs of War is considered, he thinks that this will be the end of ISIS in part because of social media showing the horrific and graphic violence might attract one kind of recruit, but it turns off significantly more recruits than it will attract. So their, their days maybe are numbered for, for I, exactly I'm going to make a prediction. Them. I'm going to disagree with the panel and say, I don't think that um, ISIS is going to be as strong as it's been. I think it's waning. I don't think it's on the rise. I think I, it might I, be I, on the decline. I don't want to be on the other side of that prediction. Oh, no, I, mean, I, I think as an idea, they have some currency. I think as an entity, I think they've got real problems going forward. And I think we are going to go, as Charlie mentioned, into a slow grind. They're going to melt back into cities. We have to decide whether we're going to bomb uh, locations that are next to civilians and men, women, and children that. that are, you know, mm. non-combatants. So it's going to be difficult and take a long time. The, but I think that they're not going to waltz into Mosul or Fallujah. They're not going to have those kinds of successes in the coming months. There's a huge challenge, I think, um, going forward. And that is they are becoming very sophisticated in getting the message out. and. And journalism, the kind of journalism that gets practiced here at WGBH by the world, by Frontline, by the Ground Truth Project, that journalism is under attack. That journalism is directly under attack. And we need it now more than ever. You have to be on the ground to see this, or how are we going to understand it? So we live in a very cynical time when it's very easy to bash the media. You can bash it on the left with MSNBC. You can bash it on the right with Fox News. And we can all come away with a sense that journalism is somehow diminished. But every day, there are these amazingly courageous reporters, many of them local reporters who are Iraqi and who are Syrian and who are, frankly, pretty amazing, who help a lot of news organizations. They're sometimes called fixers, a word I hate. They're colleagues, and they're great. And so many of us who come from Western news organizations are finding it so expensive, so hard to have the right resources to be able to calibrate the risks to go do that work, even though we want to go there and do that work. And, and some people are there doing that work on the ground. Going forward, this is a moment um, in the wake of Jim Foley's death and Stephen Sotloff's death to really think about, I think, the kind of journalism we need. On-the-ground journalism is imperiled, and it really cannot be a situation where we don't have it, or we're going to be flying blind. And that's going to be even harder for us going forward to win this. And Charlie, what happens the next time one of those videos surfaces, the next time we hear of a journalist kidnapped? And it's almost, it's sort of mathematically inevitable that we are going to have more of them. I'm really horrified and sad to report. But I think what we have to do is take it as a moment to, to be 
recommitted to what we believe in. And we sort of need a moment of courage. We need to calibrate risk. We need to be really careful about risk analysis. But we also can't let them win. And we have to find a way to keep telling the story. And this brings up a good discussion, um, Marty, briefly maybe. Um, if that video surfaces, if that video were you, do you want ransom paid? No. 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 Knowing full well that. No, uh, look, when I go into these situations, uh, look, I, I'm not trying to sound uh, heroic or brave at all. I mean, it's simply a risk that comes with uh, the work. I mean, a lot of people have jobs that entail a certain amount of risk, and I accept that that's a risk, and I believe that the payment of ransom uh, only uh, promotes you know, more uh, hostage taking. So we, we live in a very difficult situation because a number of European countries readily pay ransom, and the United States sits somewhere on the fence or doesn't pay at all, depending on, uh, on the person. Um, but I, I don't expect too, but... I don't expect to um, to have a ransom paid. I was just going to say, Marty, I, I thought that too, and it's a perfectly rational way of looking at it. The U.S. foreign policy and the British policy of not paying ransom is a good one. It's in our field guide at Ground Truth that you know that that is a policy. You don't pay. Then I got to know the Foley family, who are extraordinary and who who have this amazing son, James, who's being held. And believe me, it's a lot harder when, you, when you're dealing with that equation on that level. And if it, if it were my son, uh, I, I, would, I would be thinking very hard about that equation. It gets a lot more blurry. And I think one of the things that's been the best way of describing this is that right now what we need to do is pull this debate into the light. The KNR, kidnap and ransom debate, has been in the darkness because oil executives are kidnapped frequently and big oil companies pay. Executives pay. There's a lot of industry of this, as was said in the beginning by Ted. This is how ISIS also makes its money. It's not just the oil, it's also kidnapping. Uh, we, we just have one more question, and this is also from the audience. And, and this has been asked a lot, and I don't know that we've gotten a great answer. And, and I think e each of you should take a a short crack at it. Um, what is your best guess as to ISIS's capacity to bring the fight here to the US? They've certainly threatened us, and, and those threats have been used by American policymakers, uh, generally right-wing folks, to, to justify taking the fight there. You know, none of us here uh, that I know are privy to the sort of intelligence reports that come across the president's desk every day, so it's hard to assess what the sort of state of threat is. And even if we were privy to those uh, reports, we wouldn't necessarily really know. Um, I, though, you know, we spend a lot of time, the three of us, uh, in this territory thinking about it. I, I, for one, do not see them as an imminent threat at this point. Um, that doesn't mean that there won't be copycat uh, or people inspired. Uh, by ISIS to take action, but the kind of idea that they can mount a 9-11 type attack at this point, degraded as they are, as, as hunkered down as they have to be with the bombs falling, I just don't think, um, I, I don't see them as being um, an imminent threat. You know, we, we have to endure a certain level of terrorism. Uh, we, we have um, 
unfortunately. I'm having a hard time stepping back from this one because Foley was a friend. And I, I am aware of the lack of uh, ability to step back. But I also think there is a peril that I expressed earlier that is real, which is they're attacking us, as in we who are journalists. And I think that is something that we're going to see more of, because if they can put the lights out on how we view this situation and how we get inside and really find these stories and tell the truths like you did in your film, that's to their advantage. And I think one of the perils now is that they're attacking our ability to report on the ground. And I think that's real. And I think it's, it's ominous. And we need to be super aware of it in our industry. And we need to deal with it. And I feel a sense of being haunted by missing it. So I'm, I'm actually, my radar is so high right now of, of peril to the country, but even more precisely and more direct to my heart is peril to what we do as journalists. Every time I do one of these, they always end on a cheery note, just like that. <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for coming, and, and thank you for the great questions. Uh, it, it was a pleasure to uh, be here with Marty, Charlie, and Mia. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit pbs.org frontline to watch The Rise of Isis and more than 170 other documentaries for free anytime. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Frontline PBS. Thanks for listening.